Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, we have, uh, I think, man, just a great day uh, lined out together to be together. A couple of things uh, that I'm going to need from you today. Uh, the first one is you may have noticed uh, that our executive pastor, Mike Childs, who I imagine is the only Cincinnati Bengals fan in our entire church, has chosen to troll all of us today uh, by wearing some Cincinnati gear. Uh, and so I just expect you to welcome him accordingly uh, when you see him on stage uh, later in the service. Secondly, most importantly, we are observing baptism together today. And uh, for those of you, there we go. There we go. I was going to make sure you remembered uh, that that is something that we celebrate, uh, that we come a little unhinged for here at Mercy Hill. Evidently, you did. Uh, and so you make sure uh, when these folks come up out of the water uh, that we celebrate loudly with them. Can we do that? Good, good. Not everything that's sacred is solemn, right? And so, uh, so we want to celebrate accordingly uh, in, a, in, a, in a little bit together. Well, it's good to see you this morning. If you're joining us online, uh, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6 today. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Galatians chapter 6. So we continue our series through uh, the book of Galatians. Uh, have, have you ever been somewhere and things just didn't feel right? Like you couldn't put your finger on what might be wrong, but you just knew something was off. Uh, perhaps you've had this experience at Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is one of the best leadership training and development cultures in our country. Uh, and you can go to a Chick-fil-A and you always get a top-notch experience. But have you ever been to a Chick-fil-A and you're like, something's different this isn't quite the level of customer service that I've grown accustomed to feeling. Uh, perhaps you sat in the drive-through line a little longer to be than to be expected. I'll say since COVID, much longer than what we were ever used to before. Or maybe there was one time when an employee didn't say my pleasure and you went, huh? That's weird. Or maybe you've had this experience at a workplace starting a new job. Uh, the interview went great. Met your coworkers. The first week on the job was fantastic. You're looking forward to it. And then you start to notice something doesn't seem quite right. Something seems off. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but you know it's there. Because at some point, what we say has to translate into what we do and every place has a certain culture. And sometimes when we talk about culture issues, it's hard to put your finger on it, but you know it when you feel it. What's about to happen in Galatians chapter 6 is Paul is going to transition into talking about the practice or the culture of our churches. He's moving from doctrine, teaching correcting the church in Galatia and correcting false teachers. They have believed the wrong thing about the gospel, confused the gospel and the law, and he has corrected them for that belief. 
He's corrected their belief about their relationship with God. He's explained to them that they've been adopted into God's family, that rituals don't get them closer to God anymore, but it's just by adoption through the gospel that they've drawn near to the family. He's talked to them about the importance of the Holy Spirit and how it's the Holy Spirit in our lives that allows us to experience certainty in knowing that we belong to God. And it's the Holy Spirit that directs us and guides us daily. And now he's going to talk about what that looks like in practice. How you move from the employee handbook, so to speak, to actually working it out corporately in a local church. So let's pray. And then Galatians chapter six, Father, in these moments, would you by your spirit enlighten us, help us to understand your word, amen. Verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear with one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows through his own flesh will reap, uh, uh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. For if we do not give up, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. These 10 verses, Paul paints a picture, a description of what we've been talking about for the past 10 weeks, what a gospel-centered, spirit-filled church actually looks like. Last week, we said that spirit-filled people produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And at the very end, last week, I asked this question. If we were a church who was made up of members all bearing the fruit of the Spirit, a picture of an orchard, fruit-bearing trees together, what would that look like and what sort of impact would that have in our community? Now, Paul's going to answer that question and tell us this is what a spirit-producing church looks like. Another way to maybe think about this is he's going to tell us this is your church's culture. This is what it should feel like. This is what people should experience when they engage in your community. Southern culture would be sweet tea, a slower pace of life, and maybe just a little bit of gossip every now and then. Sometimes with culture, we think about it negatively. Often we use the word culture to just be synonymous with the way the Bible talks about the world, this age. We talk about culture wars, things that we have to defend ourselves from the culture. The changing culture around us is at fault for every negative thing that happens often in our lives. But culture is just a tangible expression 
of what a group of people value and believe. J.I. Packer defines it this way. Culture, he says, a word borrowed from sociology means the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. And then he says this of the church. A church's culture should be orthopraxy expressing orthodoxy. Now he uses two big words there. What do those mean? Orthopraxy means right practices, our actions, what we do. Orthodoxy means right belief, our convictions or our values. So for instance, orthodoxy in Christian history means we say Jesus is Lord. We believe that Jesus is Lord of all, that he is the risen savior of all, and we hold that to be true. Orthopraxy would be how we practice or act like Jesus is Lord. So we don't worship other gods, right? We don't have an image of Zeus in our church. Why? Because we believe Jesus is Lord, so what we practice is the worship of Jesus and Jesus alone. Does that make sense? So then that, J.I. Packer says, is a church's culture. When what it believes starts to be expressed in what it does. When our actions and behaviors are shaped by our beliefs. And so a certain belief should drive a certain culture. So what, if, what does this culture of a gospel-centered, spirit-filled church look like? The first thing he says, number one, would be a gospel culture maximizes grace and does not minimize sin. Verse one, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So in a church that has the gospel at the center produces a culture where when this scenario arises, they respond in a certain way. When it becomes apparent in a church that someone is caught up in sin, the word he uses is transgression, which just means boundary breaking. When somebody has crossed the line, the church acts and receives that person in a particular way. Believers in a church do get caught up in sin. Sexual sin, lying, manipulation, deceit, stealing, theft, divisiveness, division, gossip. But a church's culture is how that church responds when someone is caught up in that sort of sin. We have some choices, some options. We could minimize sin. We could ignore it. We could pretend like it never happened and just turn a blind eye to it. Excuse it. We could dismiss their sin. Make excuses, act like it's not a big deal. We might say things like other people have done worse. Dismissing and excusing and ignoring all would just minimize the effects of sin and the reality of sin in our church. Or we could minimize grace. We can meet each other's sins with condemnation. We could give the law and not the gospel. We can make sure as enforcers of the law that people feel the weight of their sin. We could load them down with guilt and shame. 
We can make it impossible or near to impossible for them to re-engage with our community. We could pretend that our role is to bring conviction, not remembering that that is the role of God's spirit. Or we could do what's described in verse one. We could maximize grace while not minimizing each other's sins. We could care for each other in our moments of need. We could set our aim to be not guilt and shame and condemnation, not ignoring or dismissing, but what Paul says, restoration. Now the restoration of a believer who's followed in the sin is kind of like the restoration of a broken bone. The worse the break is, sometimes the more pain that is involved. And we walk with each other through the painful process of restoration until their bones are mended. And we do this, no doubt, because sin is already painful in our lives, Paul says, with a spirit of gentleness. Not condemning, not blaming, not holding sin over each other, but gently the spirit of Jesus moving toward restoration. Now remember, grace is unmerited favor. And so in this process of restoration, what we are doing is exactly what Jesus did for us. We are giving to each other exactly what we don't deserve. How beautiful is that? Restoration does not mean ignoring consequences. Listen, we love you here. If you commit murder, you're probably going to jail and there's nothing we can do about it, all right? However, a church that has a culture of maximizing grace but not minimizing sin acknowledges that wrongdoing and walks with people even during their consequences. So we're gonna pray for you and we're gonna come see you in prison and we're gonna ask you over and over and over again if you would repent. Now, who does this? You see the phrase, you who are spiritual? Now, we would read that phrase and think automatically it's the superstars, the pastors do it, right? Because they're the most spiritual among us. But what do we just learn in the last chapter of Galatians? Every believer is filled with the Spirit, and every believer should be marked by the work of the Spirit. And so when Paul says you are spiritual, what is he saying? All y'all, everybody that's got the Spirit, the church. In other words, what he means is the faith family, the people of God. We can't count on people who aren't believers to restore sinners. Restoring sinners is in the following the way of Jesus, so who does that? The people of Jesus. And so we're all responsible. And why? Because we hold on tightly the truth that none of us is beyond any transgression or sin. We remember what Jesus did for us. We experience the goodness of his forgiveness and restoration in our lives. Good gracious. Why would we not be a people who are quick to forgive and long to restore?
Ray Ortland writes this in his little book on the gospel. He says, the doctrine of grace, teaching of grace, creates a culture of grace where good things happen to bad people. Could you imagine a church where people show up every Sunday, every time their missional community gathers together, every time they serve in the community, every time just a few people in the church get together for dinner? And the expectation was, this is a place, and I'm among a people where good things happen to bad people where the truth of the gospel that Jesus rescued us when we were in our sin translates to the way that we treat and love each other. Then he does give a warning. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you are tempted. Of course, walking through difficult times with people who are struggling with their sin, exposes us in some ways to sin. And so there is some danger. Church is messy. What we do affects each other. But I'm not sure that's what he means here. I think the warning is for those of us who are spiritual that we might not be tempted to gloat that the subtle sin of pride would not creep into our hearts. That as we watch, pray for, and interact with brothers and sisters who are struggling, the danger would be unintentionally that we would embrace a viewpoint that we are better than them. That we would be tempted to pride, self-righteousness, boasting in our own works, which again would be minimizing sin and minimizing our need for grace. But couldn't we be a church culture that maximizes grace but not minimizes sin? Number two, a gospel culture serves each other and resists taking advantage of each other. Verse two, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That a gospel culture serves each other. We lift each other up. We walk with each other in trying times. We love our neighbors to the point that we don't abandon each other in sickness, in loss, in death, getting fired from a job, but that we carry each other's heavy burdens. He says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean? What's the law of Christ? We just told us in Galatians 5 to love our neighbor as ourselves. And just through the rest of the book has given us this example of Christ. And so what he means is that we would fulfill or follow the very example of Jesus' life. That we would bear with each other as Jesus has borne our burdens. Can you imagine what has Jesus done for you? How has Jesus carried you? How has Jesus sustained you? And Paul says we fulfill that, follow in those footsteps when we do that for each other. 
And then verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That if we refuse to bear with one another because we think it's beneath us, then the problem isn't with the person who's going through a difficult circumstance. The problem, he says, is with us. That we have given in to a level of self-deception, believing that we are better than our neighbors, our fellow church members, and our friends. Todd Wilson says, the proud, the conceited, are too exalted in their own hearts to bend low to carry other people's burdens. Inflated egos inhibit burden-bearing. Burden-bearing is, after all, a slave's task. It's menial, messy, and often thankless job. It is not a job for the proud. So Paul says, resist believing that you are entitled to something but we serve each other. This danger of entitlement starts to creep in. Then we start to serve each other in order to get something back. A little reciprocity. You scratch your back. No, I scratch your back. You scratch mine. So that's why he says in verse four, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. You go, wait a second. Wait, wait. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens. And then two verses later, everybody's got to bear their own load. It doesn't come through in English. And in Greek, it's two different words. So burden is a heavy weight that is loading someone down. The word load, however, is like a backpack. So it's like just what you're responsible for. So here's what he's saying is we're not banking on other people to carry what we should be carrying on our own. Or we're not presuming that it's someone else's job. We are thankful and grateful for our brothers and sisters who come alongside us to help, but we are resisting the urge to take advantage of our brothers and sisters by thinking that it's all somebody else's responsibility. So we're not focused only on what other people are doing, but we have to look at ourselves. Isn't this amazing picture of community? Where we are together serving, loving, and bearing with each other, but we are not presuming or taking advantage of each other or feeling entitled. In fact, I would say that's the only way biblical community actually works. And then he gives an example. One way that we could take advantage of each other, verse six, says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. What's the example? It says you could easily take advantage of your pastors in this way. You could feel entitled to being shepherded well and taught well to the point that you don't take care of those who have uh, care over your soul. You would not properly value their work in your lives. Now, thankfully, at Mercy Hill, this is not something I have to spend a lot of time on or address. I think everybody on our staff, our elders, our pastors would say that you are a church that cares for us well. 
But the temptation behind that is the temptation to be consumers, not participants. To treat pastors and leaders like goods to be consumed and not people who belong to the same family of faith. So he gives that example. So let me again just say two things. First, thank you. Uh, you were incredibly generous to me and my family. And you as a church are incredibly generous to the other pastors and staff members here. All of them would say that. Secondly, um, this is important, but let me give some riverbanks. We're not going crazy here with some sort of honor culture, all right? We appreciate the way you care for us. We appreciate the respect that you give to us, uh, but we're not pedestaling pastors here, right? Do you understand what I mean? None of us are beyond accountability. We appreciate your generosity. We also appreciate it when you say, hey, this is a little too much. That make sense? All right, good. Number three, a gospel culture plants good and trusts God for the harvest. Verse seven, do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows, sows to his own flesh, uh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul gives what is known now as the principle of the sower. This principle is true in agriculture and is true in life. What a farmer plants is what comes out of the ground. What you sow is what you reap. Uh, you're not going to sow wheat and get corn. You're not going to sow peanuts and get soybeans. If you sow peanuts, you get peanuts. And the same is true for us. If we spend all day gratifying our own sinful nature, what we get out is what that produces. If we sow into our lives dishonesty, we don't get friendship out. We get broken relationships and loneliness. If we sow into our lives envy, we do not get a harvest of contentment, but bitterness. If we sow discord, we do not get a vibrant community. We get division, strife, and isolation. If we sow anger and fear into our lives, we do not get peace. We get expecting the worst out of others, a lack of trust in a fractured community. I said this last week. I'm going to say it to you again this week. You cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit if what you sow into your life is Fox News and CNN. I'm not saying don't watch the news, but I am saying it's an entire media built on fear, anxiety, and anger. And the more you put it in, guess what you're going to get out? And then you bring what you watched that morning at your house here. And guess what that produces? Discord, envy, strife, contentiousness, division. So be careful what you put in because that's what you're going to get out. Not only that, the good news is, though, if you sow good, sow the Spirit, what you get out is good stuff. If we plant grace in our lives, 
If we go to the scripture over and over and remember what Jesus has done for us when we didn't deserve it, guess what we get out? Grace. A love and a willingness to walk with other people. If we go in prayer on a regular basis and thank Jesus that he forgave us of our sins, guess what we get out? Humility and a willingness to forgive others. What we put in is what we get out. And that goes on and on and on forever. This is not, I want to be careful here, a guarantee. It's, what I'm not, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you put in a dollar to the church offering plate, you're getting a dollar out. If you put in generosity, you get the kind of community that is generous with each other. Does that make sense? The problem with sowing and planting is I've done it before. We've tried to do a garden numerous times at our house. You know what it is? It's terrible, man. Some of you guys love this. I, don't, I have no idea why you love it. Because here's the thing. Netflix, I turn it on and then I watch a movie, right? The little bit of effort, click, that I have to do is immediately gratified. But with sowing, planting, the harvest is forever away. How do you be patient with that? Well, that's why we have verse nine. Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us to continue to do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. He's encouraging in verse nine, don't grow weary because you're not seeing the results that you thought you would see immediately. Stick with doing good. Trust God with the harvest. Tim Keller writes, but we need to realize that there are deeper harvests that happen even when we don't meet, when we don't meet with much outward success. We find, he says, our own character changing deeply through ministry, our conscience clear, and our hearts happier since we are left less self-indulgent. We'll develop a less selfish and more satisfied character, which will serve us well when we are under pressure. We may not reap quickly, and we may not see all that we reap but we can know that there is a great harvest for those who sow to please the Spirit. And so a church culture that's driven by gospel doctrine is trusting God with the results. Trusting God to produce something in us. And we don't grow weary of doing good because God has not grown weary of extending his goodness to us. And so we persist even when it's frustrating, because that's the good news of the gospel. God is faithful. So a couple of questions today. Here's the first one. Are we people as individuals and corporately as a church saturating ourselves with the good news of Jesus? Are we preaching the gospel to each other? Are we looking in the scripture on our own and seeing it? 
Are we helping each other in community apply it? Because what produces a gospel culture? Gospel teaching. So what we reap, right? Gospel in, what comes out? More gospel. The goodness of God in, what comes out? Goodness. Forgiveness in, what comes out? Forgiveness. All at the grace of God, what comes out? Grace. And so are we corporately together, and then as individuals, putting those things into our hearts? Secondly, I would ask this question, does our community have a gospel culture? Do we gather together with the expectation that good things happen to bad people? Who's responsible for that? That's us. Together. And perhaps some of us today, it's a point of repentance for us. I have not believed or perhaps I have not act like, acted like good things happen to bad people. So we welcome people in here, right? Broken, beat up, in the middle of sin. You can come here, because here's what we believe. You just keep showing up here. What we honestly believe is that good things can happen to you even though you don't deserve it. And then finally, does our mission reflect this? Here's what I mean. Can you imagine a church culture being sent out to our community that believes good things happen to bad people? Could what we experience here filter in to Starbucks and workplace and cul-de-sacs and apartment complexes and dorm rooms? When you leave in confidence, believing God's going to be good to you, not because you deserve it, which means God's going to be good to other people, not because they deserve it. What would happen? What would happen? If instead of banking on the quality of the music and the number of jokes that I could tell on a Sunday morning, we were just banking on spirit-filled, gospel-centered people interacting in confidence with their neighbors and friends. I like option two a lot better because sometimes my jokes aren't funny. Not often. It's a much better way to be the church. So how is this gospel doctrine, gospel culture informing your everyday life? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.